The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. I mean, for, for me, the joy of reading a, a good book is to find out what happens, but that's mm. also the joy of writing it, to find out what happens. That was Bernard Cornwell talking to us about the TV adaptation of his book, The Last Kingdom. I do think we sometimes miss the fact that this was a war of aggression. The French weren't attacking us at the time, and certainly to invade and try and conquer territory was an act of aggression. And that was Anne Curry discussing the Battle of Agincourt. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. 
Welcome to our fourth podcast of October 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Tonight, the 22nd of October, a major new historical drama begins on BBC Two, entitled The Last Kingdom. It's based on a series of novels by Bernard Cornwell that focus on the 9th century when England was being battled over by the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met up with Bernard a little while back to discuss the books that have inspired the BBC's latest historical blockbuster. Um, so probably, um, just for listeners who aren't familiar with, with the books, mm. um, can you sort of sum up, um, sum up the first two books maybe in a nutshell? What, you know, what could people expect to, to see in, in the series? Well, I, I'd sum up the, the whole series. I mean, there's actually nine books in it now, mm-hmm. but the ninth hasn't been published yet. Um, most historical novels have a big story and a little story, all right? I mean, yeah. you, think, you think of uh, Gone with the Wind, and the big story is the Civil War. The little story is Can, can Scarlet Save Tara? Yeah. Uh, and you flip them. You put the little story in the front and the big story in the background. So the, the, what these books are about and what the series is about, the big story, which is in the background, is the making of England. Uh, because if you get into your magic time machine and press the button and go back to 850 AD and you said, am I in England? They'd look at you as if you were mad because they didn't know what England was. There was no England. There was a Mercia and a a Wessex and East Anglia, Northumbria. And yet if you you then got back in and you you jumped forward 100 years, they'd say, yes, you're in England or England. So it's it's the story of how did England, how was England made? Because we don't know it. I mean, I'm English and, and I thought, I don't know. I don't know where England came from. I haven't a clue. Um, and we're not taught it. I mean, Alfred, all we're taught about Alfred is he was a bad cake maker. And that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see a story about the attempt by the Danes to take over the whole of England. So it would ne- what became England. Um, and of course it fails because we no longer, we don't live in Daneland. We don't, we're having this interview in English. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's the, the story is why we're having this conversation in English and living and having it in England. Okay. I mean, how do, I mean, so little is known about that period of history. How did you go about researching, you know, the, because, you know, it's based on historical facts. Well, we know quite a lot about King Alfred. Yeah. Um, because Bishop Asser wrote his life while, while he was still living, while Alfred was living. Uh, and of course, Alfred was very keen on literacy and he started the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. So in fact, the records are quite good. But once Alfred dies in 899, it's rather as if a light goes out and, mm-hmm. and suddenly it all becomes a lot more mysterious. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle can be incredibly frustrating. It will sort of say, in this year, <laughs> the pagans came and by the grace of God, they were defeated at. And, and that's it. And it's not, it doesn't tell you how it happened or who led the, the mm-hmm. army that defeated them or anything. Um, so a lot of it, I, I'll be really honest, is imagination. But then my job is to be a storyteller, not an historian. And, you know, if you want to know the history of it, there's plenty of good people. Justin Pollock has written a great life of Alfred. Um, and, you know, the, the, those books are there. But, but my job is to tell you a story, not... It, I'm not saying I don't have... I do have a duty to history. I have an enormous duty to history. That, that big story is more or less accurate. Yeah. Um, that, that I hope when people have finished the series, they'll think, gosh, I didn't know that. I didn't, you know... This is the process by which England was made. But I have to flesh it out with so much fiction because it is the, it is the Dark Ages. Yeah. I mean, do you prefer, because you've written books about the Napoleonic Wars, do you prefer um, 
uh, writing about a time that perhaps you, you are able to kind of flesh it out a little bit more and use your, your own sort of imagination or, you know, Napoleon was... I, I don't really mind. I mean, it's, it's, I wrote a couple of books about the American Revolution, Redcoat and the Ford. Mm. And because I live in America, I'm married an American, um, I'm terribly aware that I'm trespassing on the high ground of American myth. Mm. And, and you really can't get it wrong. I and mean, if you do, you're, you're giving a terrible <laughs> hostage to fortune. Yeah. Luckily, the records are, are immaculate. I mean, there are so many letters, diaries, and, and everything else. And in some ways, that's a gift because it just gives you the, it gives you the stuff which you can then fictionalize, even though you're still putting a small story in the foreground. Yeah. Um, but but with this, it's sometimes I feel slightly adrift. I think I wish I did know what happened. Um, you know, in the North Midlands in the year 916, mm-hmm. the, the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle isn't helping me at all. Um, but okay, I'm just going to make it up as I go along. Uh, but eventually we're going to touch base again, where, you know, that we have a fact coming up in 918, where we'll, you know, that's where we'll touch fact again. Yeah, okay. I like it. No, I do like it. I, I mean, obviously I like writing. And I don't think that the people who make the TV series should be too worried about the real history. I mean, their job too is to entertain. And we're storytellers, we're entertaining. But we are a gateway to history. I mean, I got interested in history because of the Hornblower books. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think that history should be entertaining. And I think it's fine if people settle just for the entertainment. I mean, if all you ever know about Thomas Cromwell is what Hilary Mantel did, great. Yeah. It's terrific. But, you know, some people, a few are going to think, I want to know more, and they're going to go off and find more about Thomas Cromwell and, yeah. and so it's on. It's like a starting point, like a stepping stone. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful gateway to history. Yeah. And what sort of sense did you get of, of Viking society? There are a lot of kind of cliches, aren't there, around Vikings? You know, they're sort of seen as sort of brutes. But did you get? Do you have more of a sense of them as being, you know, a bit more sort of rounded than that? Well, yes. I mean, there's been a whole sort of um, revisionist thing recently. We've tried to make out that the Vikings were actually sort of peace-loving vegans, yeah. <laughs> um, which, yeah. which, is, which is equally totally nonsense. And. Yeah, I mean, these are, in many ways, they're very similar to the Saxons. And I mean, you, you, can, you can say that the whole of the period between the end of the Roman occupation and 1066 is a period of Germanic Scandinavian invasions of, of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Uhtred, my Saxon hero, goes Viking. And there's no reason why the Saxons shouldn't go Viking and be Vikings and were Vikings at the time. Um, and the Frisians too. And uh, so... Yeah, in the end, what they want to do is they want to settle. They want the land. That's what they're after. They're after the land. And, and like everybody else, they want security. They want their children to be raised in peace. They want to live to harvest the crops they sowed the year before. Uh, but, you know, they're in a struggle for the land because they're taking somebody else's land. Yeah. And the Saxons have already got away with that. I mean, they've already taken the Brits, British land. I mean, you know, that's why the Welsh call it Slugir, the lost lands. Mm. Um, and the Saxons can't really bitch too much that so someone else is coming and doing it to them. No. And <laughs> no. um, so, I mean, the actual the actual series. How much input have you had into into you know what what can be you know what's useful in your, your books? Nothing at all. Zip you zero. Hand, you've handed them over. Handed it over totally. I, I I didn't want any input and I didn't want any influence. And the reason for that is that I used to work in television years ago. Um, the BBC no less okay. um, 10 or 11 years <laughs> and that was in news and current affairs and so I know a lot about television mm. a lot and I know enough about television to know I know nothing about producing television drama uh, I've never done it never tried to do it and I don't know anything about it 
and you simply any any input I give them other than being a cheerleader is liable to be an obstacle okay or at the, at the worst a, you know a nuisance and I don't mm. want to be a nuisance to them because they're and uh, you know you also have to have enormous faith in these people no, they no. have great imaginations and creativity I mean if you're the, the actor who is playing Uhtred you've got to feel free to, to develop him the way you see him um, and the scriptwriter too and when we did the Sharp series, I mean, I changed the way I wrote Sharp because of Sean Bean. I oh, did you? Okay. Oh, sure, because he, he brought something to it, which was terrific. He was mm. an amazing Sharp. Yeah. And I still saw my Sharp, the physical Sharp, who didn't quite look like Sean, but my God, I heard, I heard Sean's voice all the time. And similarly, Pete Postlethwaite, you know, I mean, all these people brought something to the series which, which I could use. Yeah. I mean, the series, I mean... You say the ninth, the ninth book. So it's not, is it not written yet, or it hasn't come it's out just yet? Just finished. Just finished. Yes. Um, it will come out this September. October. Will there be a tenth? Oh yes. So, do you think you're going to then take something perhaps from this series and and bring that to you know? Yes, I don't know what it is because I haven't seen anything. But oh, I'd right. be surprised if um, I I watch this series and and it does not have an effect on me. Mm. And it's going to have to be you you. I mean, give a really stupid example. Uh, my sharp had black hair. Mm -hmm. Sean doesn't. Yeah. So after the, the TV series came out, I never again mentioned the colour of Sharp's hair in a book. Only so that because so many people would come to those books because of the TV, yeah. mm. I didn't want to jar yeah. them. Uh, the people who already knew Sharp knew he had black hair, so it didn't matter. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't know what the effect is. I mean, maybe none, but I mm. suspect it will have an effect, yeah. Okay. And going back to the, the very first book, did you sort of start off, do you, do you plan how the story's going to go? No. Is it, it just sort of... Last grace? Thursday, Wednesday, we flew from home here, right? Yeah. So I was getting on a plane that afternoon. I got up at three o'clock in the morning because I had to finish the last chapter of the book. Had to. And I had from three o'clock until midday to finish it. Yeah. I still, at, at six o'clock in the morning, I still didn't know how that chapter would end. Eventually, about 10 o'clock, I thought, oh, yeah. Got it, yeah. And, I mean, for, for me, the joy of reading a, a good book is to find out what happens, but mm. that's also the joy of writing it, to find out what happens. Mm. Um, and it's not the most efficient way to write. I mean, I'd much rather do it the way that other people do, who plot everything out beforehand. I can't do that. I sort of write and mm. find out what happens as I go along, and it often surprises me. And this is the second book in a row where I got to the last chapter and didn't know how it would end. That, that could probably... Can that, can that go on for a while, though, not knowing how it's going to end? Or do you, are you sort of the sort of person who would, you know, well, is you, there? You have a vague idea where mm. it will end. I mean, a very, very vague idea. But um, it still took me by surprise, the yeah. ending. Okay. And what about your, your lead character? Um, was he someone you'd been sort of planning or thinking about for a while before you actually started writing the books? No, I tend, I tend to find out about them as I go they, along they sort too. of grow as well, do they? <laughs> Remember, I started him off as a child. Yes, yeah. Um, and things happen to him, and that has an effect on him. Uh, and no, I, I, don't, I don't think that much about them. Um, I let them tell me who they are. Okay. I know it's terrible, isn't it? Well, no, it's, 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 I think it's a, that's a really interesting way of, of doing it. Like you say, there's, there's lots of different ways of... Um... And sometimes your readers tell you about them too. I mean, I, I was probably halfway through the series with Utrecht when, when I, I began to notice how many people were writing to the website saying, we love that he behaved badly. And I thought, ah, 
that's what you want. And so he's proceeded to behave worse and worse and worse. <laughs> Um, is there a kind of is there a period of history that you would you would like to to write about that you haven't yet? Yes. What what would what would that be? Was uh, I would love to write about the sort of birth of the English theatre. Okay, so it's quite quite different. Then. Mm. Oh yes. So in other words, we're you know going back to the seventeenth century. And, yeah. and, and again, you know, where does the theatre come from? I mean, mm. um, it's this extraordinary sudden appearance of yeah. a professional theatre. Which, because the Puritans managed to stop yeah. in yes. the you know in the seventeenth century, but it, it comes back in all its glory. Mm. And I think I, I love the theatre and I love the history of the theatre. And I think it's just an, again and just another wonderful story. Yeah, and um, already people are kind of calling this new series um, sort of the BBC's Game of Thrones. Which <laughs> uh, you know I was, I was sort of looking on the on the internet and like it's you know lots of people saying that already. I mean, have you seen the series? Is that something you agree with? I, mean, that's I haven't seen Game of Thrones. I've read the book and I know George a bit. Mm. Um, so, no, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't want people to be disappointed because we don't have lots of naked women lying around <laughs> behalf of the, <laughs> each, each episode, right? <laughs> and obviously what George is doing, I mean, his, he cements his fantasy in a background which is obviously drawn from medieval England. And that gives it a realism which is, which, which is necessary. This is slightly different, I mean, in the sense that it, the, the background here is real. I mean, it is the making of England, and, and it is a different, it's a slightly different era. I mean, I think George probably is setting his more or less in the sort of Wars of the Roses. And yeah. the, I mean, you know, we're going way, way back. No, I mean, I'm flattered. I mean, let's hope it has, has the same effect. But I mean, I, I do think that obviously many of the elements of Game of Thrones are not in this no. and, and, and shouldn't be. And when you, obviously you mentioned that you, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle um, and some of the sources from the time, what about things like the, the detail, like the clothing and, and things like that? Did you have to, do you pay much attention to that type of... Um, well, you do, yeah. I mean, I've actually got, you know, a couple of books on it. <laughs> um, and yes, but, uh, you know, I don't go into great detail no. on clothing because it doesn't, it's not something that terribly interesting. No. And, uh, but I mean, I do occasionally, yes. But that sort of, you know, detail, you know... To you, that is important. That is oh, yes, yes, as well. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That was Bernard Cornwell, one of Britain's best known historical novelists and the author of the books that inspired The Last Kingdom. As well as interviewing Bernard, Charlotte also managed to grab a few words with Stephen Butchard, the writer who has adapted the novels for the small screen. Stephen, you're the, you're the scriptwriter for the series. Yeah. Um, just kind of, can you just, for, for the listener's perspective, what does that actually involve? So do you, have you had to read all uh, Bernard's books and then you, you make a script out of that? How, what was your kind of brief when you, when you took the project on? Well, this series, series one, is, mm-hmm. is eight one-hour episodes. Yeah. And it covers the first two books, uh, The Last Kingdom and The Pale Horseman. So my first job would be to read the books. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's not so much to remember details about like that, it's to get, try and get a sense of what it's about. Yeah. And that sounds odd, but it means, you know, for me it means um, it's important, you know, the, what a character is feeling. You know, so what's, what's the general, you know, if you had to sum up a book in a sentence, what would it be? You know, yeah. so, so, you know, like anyone, what's the film about? And, and you don't want to go into this happened, this happened, this happened, but it's just generally, you know, what, what is this about? And, and it's kind of summed up in, in that this is about a boy who's taken as a Saxon and brought up a Dane. 
and that's the important thing to remember. So he's, he's in these conflicted worlds, and that's always where the drama is. Yeah. So he's been stolen from one world, taken to another, but then abandoned by both worlds. So it's him finding, trying to find a place all the time. So I've read those. I read the books, and that's that's like the sense of it. But all the time, you you kind of have to keep that nugget at the sense of everything that yeah. happens. You know, so so that, that that's there. How do you sort of go about? Um, engaging a modern audience with with something I mean that's a world so alien to us I mean how you know in terms of sort of you know language and, and you know script and things like that how do you how do you do that it, it's, it's got to be about the character mm. you know if, if you don't care for the person on the screen if you don't care for the character you're not going to engage you know so you have to present rounded characters and they have to be doing something you know it doesn't yeah. matter you know what world you're in you know in, in this world if we have a battle no one is going to care about what happens in the battle if you don't care for the individuals within the battle. Yeah, that's so that's where it all comes from. And all you've got to connect emotionally. So that's what it's about. It's about making these people feel as real as possible. And, and that's that sort of you know that, that's you know with the books, which is the central character in the Alfred book, but it's, it's growing them more and then growing the other characters. Yeah. As well. um, and that's how you do it. Uh, in terms of language that they use. Um, you know, it's the ninth century. We don't really know what people spoke like <laughs> no, that's true. Or no. what language even. There must have been all kinds of dialects and mixes. Not yeah. that. But I knew there had to be a distance between now and then. Um, but you don't want that distance to be alienating. You don't want RP. You don't want no. actors with a pole at the backside. Like that. No. You, you, <laughs> no, you, you, want, you want it to sound naturalistic, but there has to be that distance. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, try, you try and find the ground, you know, yeah. where it sounds naturalistic. And again, that's, that's about the character as well. No, because you want people to to be engaged and to care yeah, yeah. That, and that's, that's what it's all about that, that's that's yeah. the most important thing in drama is mm. is making people care about the characters have you come across any sort of challenges when you were when you were sort of coming up with the scripts you have to choose your through line you know, across the two books what, what's this about um, and it is basically about the last kingdom you know the, the title of the first book both books feed into that Wessex is the last free kingdom of England it's surrounded by Danes Alfred is the king of Wessex and into his court comes this Saxon-born boy with the sensibilities of a Dane. Yeah. You know, so that, that's, you know, and, and he becomes Alfred's main weapon against the Danes, but equally he doesn't trust him. You know, so, so that, that, that's, that's what I remember and then that's my through line. All, everything is about, for Alfred saving Wessex, but everything for Uhtred is about finding himself and finding his way home to Northumbria. So it all comes back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it, all the time, and everything kind of feeds in to yeah. those central things. So it, it's finding the through line through the books, and there's things that you have to lose, you know, you can't, mm. you can't follow it. There's, there's the certain characters that you grow, the certain characters that you lose. Um, you know, the, the challenge of the first book was that he is predominantly a boy. You know, he, he's, he's 11 years, 12 years of age in the first book. But as an audience, we want to invest in our adult hero as soon as possible. So that, so that means, you know, he's an adult by the, my episode one. I'm only one-eighth through it. Okay, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's a... So therefore, I have to, you know, be careful. Well, what do we really want from when he's a boy and stuff like that? And then yeah. just changing certain events in little ways so it fits to him as a man. So were, were you kind of uh, part of the filming process? So, you know, were you um, sort of tweaking the scripts According to you know the actors um, and how they you know how they interpret things. Well, when when we started filming, I'd written four scripts when we yeah. started, so I still had four to write, and that was that was only possible because uh, we started in November, but then we had a break over the Christmas um, and let the, the really bad weather 
uh, in, in January. So we had about six weeks off in between. Um, but, but you know, scripts are rewritten. You know that it's, you don't get everything right first time. You know, yeah. so you have to do that draft, and then you know locations may change. You know, so you, you change little things and stuff like that. But you do, you know, you, as we start filming, you know, I'm seeing what we film each day. So you see how certain actors are or what sets are like and stuff like that. And and, and you know, you, actors bring certain things to, mm. to your character, so they they do change slightly. So you know, um, sometimes you do find, or if it, if you fall in love with an actor, you know, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to write him for him or her, you know, until the cows come home yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. You've got to be kind of careful that like, you do want to write more for them, but they've got to, it's got to be within the confines of the story. Okay. So you know, there is, there's a limited fluidity about mm. the scripts. Now, you've got to, you have to tell your story, but with scripts, you know, you, you also have to be aware of um, well, constraints like budgets as well, you know. Yeah. You know there's, there's, but also with this story, you've got to be careful of repetition because how many battles do you want? So I've said this before, that's the thing, you do literally, literally have to choose your battles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, because you can't have a fight every week, otherwise you're like, oh, it's another battle. It's another battle, yeah. yeah. And how so, different can they be? So, so when you have a battle, you know, there's got to be a lead up to it and there's got to be fallouts, you know, so it, it, you choose it to make the most of, of, of the lead outs and the effect yeah. on the characters. Yeah. So, so it, is, it, it all boils down to characters, really. That was Stephen Butchard. And as I mentioned at the start, The Last Kingdom begins tonight, the 22nd of October, at 9pm on BBC Two. And it should then be subsequently available on the BBC iPlayer. And if you'd like to know more about the historical backdrop to The Last Kingdom, then why not check out our November issue, which includes an article on 9th century England, written by Ryan Lavelle, who was a historical advisor on the series. Also in the November issue, there are articles on spies in World War II, the American Revolution, the Celts and ancient Egypt. You can get hold of our November edition now in all good news agents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. A pile of bones discovered 140 years ago in a pub in North Wales could be the remains of an English Catholic priest who was hanged, drawn and quartered for his religious beliefs, it has been claimed. University of Edinburgh specialists have carried out forensic tests on the bone fragments, which included part of a skull and a leg, and concluded that they belonged to a priest who was killed in this manner in the 17th century. According to the Catholic News Agency, the bones could belong to St John Plessingdon, who was executed in Chester in 1679 as a result of strict Elizabethan-era laws that stated being a Catholic priest was an offence of high treason. The bones were discovered in the late 19th century at the Old East Star Inn next to St Winifred's Well, Hollywell, in North Wales. The bones were reportedly found in a bundle of 17th century children's clothing and hidden inside a trunk. The current Bishop of Shrewsbury has launched an appeal for donations to carry out further DNA tests on the remains. In other news, a First World War poison gas factory used to produce nearly 390,000 mustard gas shells towards the end of the conflict has been added to a list of England's most at-risk heritage buildings. The growth of trees and shrubs threatens to destroy the remains of the Northamptonshire factory, which was built in just three months in 1916 under an emergency scheme overseen by then-munitions minister David Lloyd George. Historic England has added the remains of the munitions plant to its annual Heritage at Risk Register, which was published on the 20th of October. Other buildings added to the register include a Napoleonic-era lookout post in Essex, a Victorian pub in Wandsworth, London, and the Old Pier Lighthouse in Sunderland, which dates from 1856. This Sunday, the 25th of October, will see the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Agincourt, one of England's best-known medieval triumphs. To find out more about the events of October 1415, I caught up with Professor Anne Curry of the University of Southampton, one of the world's leading experts on the battle. I began by asking her how the English and French armies had come to blows in the first place. The Battle of Agincourt came about because the French intercepted Henry V on his way back to England. Henry didn't intend to fight a battle. He intended to fight a campaign of conquest, but he abandoned that conquest after the siege of Harfleur had taken him too long. So we find him trying to get away from Harfleur to Calais as quickly as possible. The French threaten him at the Somme. He therefore moves inland a long way, but eventually manages to cross the river. But the French still intercept him before he manages to get to the the safety of Calais. So that's why the battle is fought actually quite close to Calais. What was he doing campaigning in France in the first place? Henry V's campaigning in France really because his ancestors had campaigned in France. He's following up the claim of Edward III to the throne of France. But it isn't just that historic claim to territory in France and to, to royal titles in France. It's also because Henry is only the second king of a new dynasty, the Lancastrian dynasty. So he's keen to establish the dynasty's position in England and he's keen to establish his own position as king. When he invades France, he's only been king for two years. So it's really part of proving himself and proving his power and his dynasty within the nation. 
at the start of the battle, what were the respective strengths of the two armies? And I know this is a subject that's still quite hotly contested. The sizes of the armies are contested and will continue to be because we don't have very much financial material for the French army. For the English army, I argue that we have got enough material. We know how many set off in the first place. We can prove that at least 11,200 set off and there seem to be some retinues missing, so we may be approaching 12,000. We know that Henry had to put 1,200 into garrison at Harfleur after he took it. We know that 1,500 names are on the sick list. We know that a few men died at the uh, siege of Harfleur, although so far I've only found about 50. So I've estimated perhaps around 8,500 men were still with him on that march. But the point about it is he has a relatively low proportion of men-at-arms, maybe 1,000 to 1,500 men-at-arms with the rest archers. As for the French, we honestly don't know how many they had there, but we know that they raised a tax to fund an army of 9,000. And so if we add in other troops that responded to what's called the Simons des Nobles, the summons to nobles, uh, to, to turn up... And we know that people turn up from the north of France. Most of the dead are from Normandy, Picardy and Artois. I don't think 12,000 is unreasonable. My figure is lower than many other people's because I argue the king wasn't there in person, nor was the Dauphin, so the army's bound to be lower than when they would have been there. France was still politically divided. The Duke of Burgundy wasn't there. Other key players like the Duke of Brittany wasn't there in person. The Duke of Berry wasn't there in person. So I think those all sort of take the the total downwards uh, rather than upwards. I think you've got to be realistic as well. If you look at the terrain itself, the higher numbers given just couldn't fit in. We know the French weren't raising armies of 20,000 till the end of the 15th century. And I think also you can't feed an army like that in the field for very long. You know, the English move across territory, so do the French. That's often missed out of the accounts. So they had a lot of difficulty because of loyalties, because of just the sheer logistics of it. So I don't think 12,000 is, is unreasonable. As we know, of course, England famously won this battle. What do you see as the most important reasons for the English victory? The most important reasons for the English victory are, I think, uh, twofold. The first is leadership. Henry V's presence there is absolutely key, and it contrasts with the lack of leadership on the French side. The leading French general, if you like, was a 21-year-old Duke of Orleans who had no military experience at all. So he's a leader because he's the most senior nobleman there of the royal house. And it seems as though he and the Duke of Bourbon uh, were the ones that called the the shots, as opposed to the Marshal Boussicot and the Constable d'Albret, the sort of seasoned commanders who may have indeed urged uh, not to give battle uh, against the French. So I think we've got a contrast in leadership. Henry had also been with his men for many months by now, and so they trusted him. He'd chosen his commanders on the day, his cousin, the Duke of York, to command the vanguard, uh, Thomas Lord Camoys, again married to a relative, uh, to command the, the rear guard, Sir Thomas Erpingham, often said to be the commander of the archers, not wholly sure, but he certainly had a command role because he throws the baton up into the air and the advance begins. So, you know, the leadership element is absolutely key. The second reason is the archers. And I think here we've got to remember that the value of archers is in their sheer mass. 
that uh, we're not looking for sharpshooters, Robin Hoods, who can sort of pierce uh, a man-at-arms armour. What we're looking for is the mass effect. I mean, say 7,000 or so archers in volleys. They don't need to be all doing 15 a minute. So we're going to get them in sort of volleys against the French. It's just so destructive against the cavalry charge of the French and against the French advance on uh, foot. The horses rear up, throw their riders. Uh, in fact, probably the French commanders couldn't get enough men to join the cavalry attack against the archers because they were worried about what would happen to their horses. The archers are protected by their stakes, and so they can continue shooting from behind them. As for the advance of the French foot, they were hoping by their, their sheer weight of numbers, so many more men-at-arms than on the English side, just to sort of uh, uh, steamroller really across the, the, the English men-at-arms, but the, some of them never even got there. The arrows forced them into a funneling effect. They collided into each other, fell over. Others piled on top of them. They got so close they couldn't raise their weapon arms. And so they're just easy pickings uh, for even archers to sort of jump into the heaps and to, uh, to kill them there. And I think the telling point, although we have to be bring in the killing of the prisoners to this is just how few deaths there were on the English side as opposed to on the French side because given these men-at-arms are equally well equipped and trained in the same way in a hand-to-hand -hand fight in the melee we'd have expected reasonably equal mortality rates we have maybe a couple of hundred English dead and maybe 2,000 French dead so that indicates that they never really got to grips they died from other reasons. Do you think with better leadership there was any way the French could have actually won the battle? I don't honestly think they could have matched the uh, English arrow power. I mean, the French did have archers there, but not enough, really, and they seem to have chosen not to, to use them. I think they couldn't have beaten the English uh, in that archer-rich situation. After all, they hadn't at Cressy and they hadn't at Poitiers. So it was a huge risk even giving battle against the uh, the English with that situation. Also, I'd add that you can't train against archers. You can't train against those volleys of arrows, whereas you can train to fight in the melee and to use your lance and your sword and that kind of thing. So, actually, I don't think they could have defeated the English. Something you mentioned or referred to earlier was one of the most controversial aspects of the battle was the killing of French prisoners. I mean, would this have been controversial at the time or was it just as part of medieval warfare? The killing of the prisoners wasn't controversial at the time. It is reported in most chronicles and it is linked to Henry's fear that a new French attack was coming. Now, that's quite important because it shows that his army had been stood down. They'd had time to search amongst the heaps for the living. They'd even had time to collect them together. And then, according to one eyewitness account on the French side, uh, a shout went up that the Duke of Brabant was coming and Henry ordered the prisoners to be put in a barn and the barn set on fire. Uh, now, clearly, he'd stood his men down. They'd presumably taken their gauntlets and their helmets off put down their weapons, it was inevitable that he had to, uh, he, he didn't think they were in a position to meet a new French, French challenge. The prisoners clearly are a challenge in their own right. They could have used their fists or whatever. It just was a very disruptive thing and therefore he had to take that uh, kind of evasive action. Whether any fighting then followed is really difficult to tell. The 
post-killing of the prisoners situation is very varied in the different chronicles. Some say, you know, that Henry sent a herald to tell the French what he was doing, and he said, I'll keep doing this unless you go away. Well, we don't really know, or did they see it happening, or did uh, they they know about it in some way, then not attack, or did they attack and then Henry's men beat them off? We don't actually know, and that's quite an interesting point. We don't know what happened after the killing of the prisoners. But they didn't kill all the prisoners, am I right? There were still quite a few that did survive. They didn't kill all the prisoners, and so far we've been able to identify 320 men who were prisoners and uh, uh, held to ransom. I mean, the ransom records are pretty good. Um, maybe there are more, but 320 is quite interesting. So far, we've only been able to identify 500 dead. So what was the impact of Agincourt on the wider Hundred Years' War? The immediate impact of Agincourt isn't that great. Rather like Cressy, it was such a great disaster for the French in terms of losing peers that the French king didn't want to negotiate. You know, it was such a disaster. They couldn't really force themselves to to come to any terms. Um, I think... In the medium term, it meant that the French never wanted to face Henry V in battle again, so they didn't rescue Rouen when he besieged it in 1418-19. But in the longer term, other than giving Henry the high ground, you know, and to show what an effective ruler and military leader he was, the crucial thing is the Treaty of Troyes of 1420 that made him heir to the throne of France. And that came about really because of the civil war in France. The Dauphin arranged the assassination of the Duke of Burgundy. The Burgundians then allied with the English and the rest, as they say, is history. It made it possible for Henry then to push the advantage and to be accepted by the French king as his heir and the Dauphin is disinherited. Things might have stayed like that, and Henry V may have gone on to be a very successful king of France, but he died in 1422, a few weeks before his father-in-law, Charles VI, and therefore he's succeeded with a nine-month-old baby in England and ostensibly in France, whereas the Dauphin, involved in the killing of the Duke of Burgundy in 1419, is Charles VII, who is assisted by Joan of Arc to the throne in 1429. So I think you could say Henry V died too young, maybe to to sort of pull off the full advantages of his battle victory, of his conquest of Normandy, and of gaining the inheritance to France through a treaty. With that in mind, is it fair to say that Agincourt actually is not one of England's most important battles? I think Agincourt is a very important battle for our national psyche, really. We still see it as a great national victory. We still see it as the victory of the common man against the aristocracy of France. We see it then as epitomising our national and natural democracy, that we've always been a kingdom uh, country where the lower class in society are important. Also, it was so important for us in all those many years in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries when we were at war with the French. It sort of stood for our military superiority over the French. So I think it's its legacy almost that's as important. And of course, Shakespeare has a huge role in that. Agincourt is a famous battle today because people have seen it so often and they've heard it so often through the words of Shakespeare. Coming on to Shakespeare, how close is the Shakespeare version, as far as we know, to what actually happened in the battle? 
the Shakespeare version is based on Hollinshead's Chronicle, largely, and uh, that itself was based on Hall's Chronicle. Hall did use some of the texts of the 15th century there, but most importantly, he used Monstrelet. He used a printed uh, version of a French chronicle, and that is how some of the things uh, get into the play. For instance, the naming of the battle after the castle that stood nearby, that's not in any English text in the 15th century, but it is in this Burgundian chronicle of Monstrelet written in the 1440s. So uh, you could say that it sort of picks up from a variety of sources some of the things that can be traced back to the 15th century, but it adds in other things. The peers that are there are wrong. For instance, there's no Duke of Bedford there. He's the one, the brother left back in England there. There is no funny uh, Scotsman and Irishman and Welshman, you know, all of those are dramatic elements in it. We don't know that Henry went round the camp in the way that Shakespeare has him go round. And critics who've written on the play show how influential, say, Roman generals are on it, i.e. Shakespeare was calling on all kinds of influences in uh, that, that play. Henry didn't say the things Shakespeare has him say, would have had a battle speech of some sort. So there's a lot of literary invention. And maybe the most intriguing thing is there are no archers in Shakespeare's Henry V. So maybe that's the major reason why it isn't an accurate play. Ironically, there is another play called The Famous Victories of Henry V, written a little bit before uh, Shakespeare's play, and that does have archers in it, does have stakes in it. Those are completely missing from Shakespeare. That's really interesting about the archers, because I imagine the view we have of Agincourt today is, is very much influenced by Shakespeare, and yet for most people, Agincourt is all about archers. So how have the archers come back into that story? I think the archers came back, I mean, they're reasonably prominent in the texts of the time, although, of course, they only operate there as groups. You know, these chronicles only mention the great and the good, particularly Henry himself, and maybe the Duke of Gloucester, his brother who fell and the king stood over him. The archers are there in Hall and Hollinshead. They get built up, though, as the centuries go on. When the English start getting interested in archery as a sport which is starting in the 17th century, but really being built up in the 19th century. That's when it comes in. But I think it is also our democratization. It's where we start in the 19th century with larger working class populations. We're interpreting our history in a different kind of way. We're wanting to say that those working class heroes, if you like, you know, were there uh, already. You can see this in Dickens' Child's History of England in the 1850s, where he sort of says these yeomen, you know, not gentlemen by any means, but they sort of beat the hell out of the French aristocracy. The First World War is a great stimulus as well. And uh, in the writings of that period, and even into the the Second World War, uh, you get this idea that the archers are sort of Tommies of the, the 15th century. Just to, one illustration of that, when Olivier's film was produced, released in the autumn of 1944, educational materials were produced to accompany it, and a sort of mock lecture was given, and the lecturer was there was going to uh, call, was calling the archers the Tommy Atkins of the medieval period. So it's sort of linking back across the centuries. Now, the V sign, 
story is part of that, isn't it? We, you know, these are men just like us. They're not kings. They're not nobles. They're just like us. And they therefore have rude gestures. People love the story as well. Again, it's not true any more than the V sign is uh, that the archers or the, the English army all had diarrhea at the time of the battle. And that's why the archers all had loose hose and that kind of thing. Uh, in fact, the loose hoses mentioned in contemporary chronicles, again, Burgundian ones, but it's all to do with their ease of movement. It isn't at all connected in the text. There's no mention of this uh, about them having diarrhea, but that's a modern idea. And again, it's just like us, isn't it? We've all been to France and uh, eaten too much seafood or whatever. Uh, you know, that, I think we identify with uh, these, these archers. How much do we actually know about the people who were in Henry's army? We know a huge amount about the people who are in Henry's army because we have muster rolls taken before the campaign. We have some rolls taken during the campaign and then afterwards as well. Um, I think so far I'm on about 8,600 names of people that uh, I know were on the expedition. I'm trying to trace, you know, who died at Harfleur, who was invalided home there, who was actually at the battle. And uh, we can uh, say quite a lot about some Retinues, for instance, the Earl Marshall's uh, retinue, the Earl of, of Norfolk. We know that he had his barber with him on the campaign. We know he had other household servants with him. And, that. So, uh, and I'm sure more work will go on. In fact, I've got a PhD student starting with me, funded by the Gosling Foundation, to look in a bit more detail at who these men were and how they are linked to each other. Quite a number of family groups there on the campaign and men from different parts of England and uh, South Wales on the campaign. So what are the, the big unknowns about Agincourt? What would historians like yourself still most like to find out about the battle? Where it was fought, I'd say, is the main one. We cannot be too sure exactly where it was fought. The earliest map puts it to the west of the village of Azancourt, but today we think of it that the field is actually the east of Azancourt. That's been thought to be the field since at least the early 19th century, whereas this map that I talked of is sort of later in the 18th century. But so far, we haven't had major battlefield archaeology there. That that's been undertaken has found nothing relevant at all to the battle. So we're not looking quite the right place. There are various possibilities within the, the sort of envelope of Azancourt. So I'm sure that there can be further field work, but that would be useful as it was for Bosworth. Of course, this is a pre-gunpowder battle. The French did have some guns there, but the English don't seem to have done. And therefore, we're, if we do find that, we're not so likely to find the metal gun stones that we found at, at Bosworth. It just makes it so much easier if you've got gunpowder, metal gunpowder artillery. But I'm, I'm optimistic that there will be some finds in, uh, in due course. So that's, that's the major unknown. The other is the French army. But I think we can keep going on that. Uh, I and historians in France are trying all the time to collect references to people at the battle. And I'm sure we'll be able to come to some firmer figures on the people who died because these are actual individuals. You know, we can trace the succession disputes. We can trace lines coming to an end. We can trace new office holders in place. So I'm optimistic again with more documentary work in France we can uh, push forward the frontiers of knowledge on that. And I know you're, you're very much involved in the 600th anniversary commemorations. Could you give us a bit of an idea of some of the most important things that are happening? 
Yeah, Agincourt 600 is a charity that was set up some time ago, but in March, the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, announced a million pounds to uh, uh, fund activities linked to the commemoration of the battle. Similar sums have been given to Magda Carter earlier, and in March this year, were given to Waterloo too. And uh, we've had various activities that have been funded and also we've taken applications from uh, other organisations. So the main one coming up is on the 29th of October which is a service in Westminster Abbey and that will be a, a very impressive affair. There's a lot of involvement by the City of London, the livery companies, the Lord Mayor because London made a very hefty loan to support Henry's campaign in 1415 but uh, that event will have the presence of of the French, there the the mayor of the group of communes in which Azincourt uh, lies will be uh, reading a text from 1915 because in 1915 the French invited the British soldiers in the area, First World War of course, to share the day with them and to sort of shake hands over this piece of land that had been the, the site of conflict in the past, but now they were brothers together uh, against a common enemy. So it's quite nice that uh, that illusion is being evoked uh, uh, as well. When the unknown warrior was buried in Westminster Abbey, allusions were made to Henry V being buried close by in the Abbey. So that is the big uh, formal event. And then, of course, we've got the events on the battlefield itself on the 25th of October. Agincourt 600 has paid for a new memorial to the dead of both sides. And uh, there will be an international reunion on the battlefield on that day and a concert the evening before by the orchestra of the National Gendarmerie. The French commemorate Agincourt, particularly through a man called Galois Le Fougère, who was provost marshal in charge of discipline in the French army. He was killed at the battle. He was buried at Oshilehida, Franciscan monastery quite nearby, and he was dug up and is now, in fact, buried at the National Gendarmerie Memorial at Versailles, and he's claimed to be the first gendarme to die in uh, a pitched battle for, for the Kingdom of France. And so uh, the, the National Gendarmerie are heavily involved in these commemorations on the battlefield on the 25th of October. And so when you talk about these, these battlefield commemorations, where are they choosing to cite the battlefield? Uh, well, they're choosing to cite it between Azancourt and Tramcourt, as it is described in the Burgundian Chronicles, and as it become the traditional site. I mean, at present, we can do no more than to use that area between those two settlements, i.e. the traditional field. And indeed, some new boards are being put up there. And we're not putting on each one. This is alleged to be, we just got to throw caution to the wind in way with this. Uh, but it will be interesting to see whether, like Bosworth, a few years down the uh, uh, the road, uh, we will be having to move the boards to somewhere else. Do you think this is an anniversary we should be celebrating or just commemorating here in Britain? I think commemorating and not celebrating. I do think we sometimes miss the fact that this was a war of aggression. Okay, Henry V had a claim to the throne of France, but really it was water under the bridge. Edward III had a better claim and had failed to implement it and then had lost the lands he'd gained by treaty. The French weren't attacking us at the time. And uh, certainly to invade and try and conquer territory, you know, was, a, was an act of aggression. It was an obsession 
with Henry V. He raised a very large army, the largest to go to France since 1346. He was the first king to lead an army to France since 1359. So he was trying to make his mark big time there. He couldn't afford to go. He had to raid the royal jewel cupboard. He had to borrow loads of money to go. And, uh, you know, you could say that this isn't really the sort of uh, activity that we should be applauding now. I do think, though, in England and in the English-speaking world, there is this bit of jingoism about it. You know, we do think it's all right. We get these books about, the, you know, insulting the French over the centuries. It's a bit of a joke, isn't it? You know, sort of, ha, 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 we beat the French at Agincourt. But maybe we shouldn't be thinking about it in that way. As a historian, it's easy for me because I can have a professional interest in how things happened in the past and how today we might reconstruct them and analyse them using proper historical method. Uh, so it's perhaps easy for me, but I do worry sometimes at the, the, the rather over-enthusiastic response we get to getting one up against the French. That was Anne Curry. Anne has written several books on the Battle of Agincourt, including Great Battles, Agincourt, which is out now in the UK and the US, published by Oxford University Press. And if you're interested in finding out more about the battle, then you might like to check out a major exhibition on Agincourt that's running at the Tower of London from the 23rd of October until the 31st of January next year. Visit hrp.org.uk for more details. And there is also a dedicated website for the anniversary, which can be found at agincourt600.com. Professor Anne Curry wrote a piece on Agincourt for our October issue, which is no longer on sale, but can still be purchased as a back issue, in print and in some of our digital formats. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time, when we'll be talking about espionage with Max Hastings, and Andrea Wolfe will be discussing the German polymath Alexander von Humboldt. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com, and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast, 